If you would, open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1. We began a series last week, um, uh, and then laid out more groundwork for what it is about. And uh, I, I will tell you straight up, uh, because I can't just keep preaching that sermon, if you miss that one, that, uh, of all of the messages, go back and listen to that one, because it sets up the book, and I think it's crucial, and besides that, Logan Wood said that it was said yesterday that it was pure fire. So I don't know exactly what pure fire means, but uh, whatever it is, he it, he it seemed like he meant it as a good thing. So I'm thinking that <laughs> should look at that. I I do not guarantee any pure fire this morning. I just uh, guarantee God's word, and we'll do our best to communicate that. Um, but if you would join me in prayer as we approach God's word, Heavenly Father. We come to your word this morning. We ask that you would open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our hearts to understand, that you would write your word in our hearts, and that you would help us to see Christ and even ourselves in this story appropriately. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. One of the things we learned about uh, the book we call Jonah um, last week is that it is a kind of what we would today call satire. Um, in which Jonah, as one uh, commentator put it, is a ridiculous excuse for a prophet, the holy man as screw-up. Uh, and we are just like him. We have to begin by being willing to identify with the ridiculous prophet ourselves, otherwise we miss the point of the joke. And, of course, you never want to miss the point of the joke, but the reality is the joke's on us as we go through this book. And we explained that more last week. Um, but I, I want to encourage all of us to resist reading the book of Jonah, or any book in Scripture, or about any character in Scripture. Resist uh, reading the book and imagining how much better we are than Jonah. As if we don't have the same questions and the same problems. To, to really understand this book, we have to realize that we are Jonah. He is the only Israelite in the story, hence he is us. Now, like Job, the book of Job, which we spent 13 weeks on in 2012, uh, but that book is a theodicy, but so is Jonah. Uh, a theodicy is a defense of either God's existence or, in this case, more his goodness and omnipotence and view of the existence of evil. In other words, God is good, God is all-powerful, evil exists. How do you make those two come together? And Job addresses that question um, and the thing with Job, by the end of the book of Job, Job is satisfied with the answer that God gives him, even though the answer is not to all of his questions. I mean, God, Job never gets answers to all of his questions, but what he really wanted was God to show up and be present with him, and, and he receives that. Jonah, on the other hand, by the end of this book, is not satisfied, as we see. We're left with a question, will Jonah ever be satisfied? But this, that's really what this book is doing, is it's addressing the, the, the evil reality of the Assyrians and what they did to the Israelites, annihilating them from the face of the earth. And yet God, in advance, knowing this, sends Jonah so that they might relent and be forgiven, that he might show compassion on them. That makes no sense to Jonah. And frankly, it doesn't to us either if we really get into it and understand it for what it says. For Jonah... The, the question of his theodicy might be worded this way. How can God be good by relenting from destroying the Ninevites, the very ones who would erase the ten tribes of the northern kingdom from history? Isn't that evil? 
That's how he would have viewed it. In fact, he calls it that later in this book. Today we're going to look at Jonah's call and his response, and then God's response to Jonah. Most biblical prophets were reluctant to accept their call. Jonah takes the cake. Um, God calls. Jonah does everything he can to run from God, and there's just one problem. God called him, and God pursues him. Mercifully, yes, but pursues him nonetheless in what appears to be a severe mercy, if some have called the mercy of God at times, a severe mercy. To run from God, and, and, and to understand why it's mercy, you have to understand the reality that to run from God is to pursue death. To run from God is to pursue death. And God in His mercy will act to turn Jonah around. Jonah was chosen to bring life to his enemies. Sound familiar? <laughs> chosen to bring life to his enemies. Jonah's mission will ultimately result in the destruction of Israel. What kind of plan is that? Like Jonah, Israel is called by God to testify of God to the world. Now, Israel may have run from that calling at times, and many times we could even argue, but that did not stop Israel from fulfilling it. Through pain, difficulty, death, and resurrection, Israel fulfills their calling. The same is true for the church. God has called us. We will fulfill that calling. We can do it the good way or the hard way. It's all a matter of how you want to do it. But we will. Jonah's flight from God results in one of the most vivid scenes in the whole book, which we'll look at here today. As Jonah flees the Lord, he begins a downward spiral into the hull of a ship and really into a deep spiritual sleep, which endangers the unbelievers on the boat with him. His co-travelers are idol-worshiping sailors who appear to be more righteous than Jonah himself. Jonah must be lost in order for them to be saved, which may get to the whole point of the story. So let's explore this story under three headings. The first is the Lord speaks, the second, Jonah responds, and finally the third, the Lord acts. And if you would, join me uh, under the heading, the Lord speaks, and we're going to read Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, or you might read, came to the dove, that's what his name means, innocent dove, the son of faithfulness. And again, the laugh track hits, as we talked about last week, because he's anything but that in this book, okay? Uh, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. The entire story of Jonah begins not with Jonah, but with the word of the Lord. Everything proceeds from this declaration from God to Jonah. Just as we learn in Genesis, everything began when God said. Everything that was life-producing when God said. Or as John puts it, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by Him. In the life of God's people, everything begins with His Word. Israel was created by God's word to Abraham and then to Moses. The church is created by the word of the gospel. 
That is why the proclamation of God's word has always been a central piece of the worship of the gathered people of God. Because it is the very thing that creates us, that makes us who we are. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, last week I graphically described the wickedness of Nineveh and the Assyrians. It's consistent with what we read in Nahum regarding Nineveh and Assyria. Nahum, who's writing later than Jonah uh, at the time of the destruction of Assyria, he begins with, with um, what the, the heading of, in the ESV titles this, God's wrath against Nineveh. So uh, Nahum chapter 1, God's wrath against Nineveh. Nahum chapter 2, the destruction of Nineveh. A little different than what we see in Jonah, right? It's, this, it's the wrath of God against them. It happens a generation, if that, later. It pictures, and if you read those two chapters, three chapters in, in Nahum, in the third chapter we'll get to in a moment, um, it really gives us a picture of how the Israelites viewed Nineveh at that time. And then in chapter 3, what follows is, is after this clear declaration of God's vengeance upon Nineveh, we, we, we get to um, explaining why God had wrath against Nineveh. And listen to what we read in chapter 3. This is the why behind the problem with Nineveh. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey. In other words, you devour and there's no end to the people that you are devouring. The crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain. In other words, multitudes of the dead just laid out. Heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betray nations with her whorings. And peoples with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Now, that's the typical attitude of the people of God toward Nineveh. So when we read Jonah, we cannot think to ourselves, I just can't understand what's wrong with Jonah, why he would have a problem with God showing them mercy. Well, that's why. Jonah's not the odd man out for preferring God's judgment on this wicked place rather than showing compassion. Jonah was not singing, as we did earlier, God is so good, he's so good to me. He's saying, God, uh, excuse me, you'd be good to me if you'd go ahead and destroy the Ninevites, not spare the Ninevites. What's up with that? But imagine you're hearing this story for the first time, and that's hard to do given that we've had Bibles in our houses. We've all heard the story growing up in, in school. We, we know the story, but Try to imagine for the first time you're hearing this story as an Israelite who thinks all these things about Nineveh. <laughs> you know them. This is the reality. They have the enemy at your door. Like my friend who 
as a pastor over in Ukraine, he was telling me uh, sometime back, he said, well, for us, I mean, Russia invading, threats of Russia invading have been my entire life. I mean, he was born post the fall of the Soviet Union. So his entire life, all he has heard about is the threat of Soviet invasion. So the, this last time, it was like, well, it seems to be ratcheted up a bit, but who knows? Same thing I've lived with my whole life. Imagine you live there in that sense, and it's Assyria on the other side, and all the destruction they do, and God says, go preach to them. And, and, and if you know, as we know later in, in the book, Jonah thinks God will forgive them, but we don't know that yet. We don't know that now. So when God says to Jonah, and you're just reading this for the first time in the second verse of the book, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. What would you think that God intends to do? I would think that he intends to destroy them. He's called out their wickedness. He wants me to preach not for it, but against it. So somehow Jonah, we learn later, at least he tells us later that he thought otherwise, Imagine you live there in Galilee, which is where he is from. Jonah was from the town just down the street. I mean, walking distance from Nazareth. In Galilee. You're close to the edges of the kingdom. You're, you're right there on the border of the Assyrians. They are your greatest threat. And if you hear God say, cry out against them because of their evil, their injustice, their wickedness, you might assume he wants to destroy them. I would. And since we're in chapter 1 and not chapter 3 and 4 where God forgives them, we should carry that thought and be surprised when we get to chapter 3 that something else happens, right? That we should keep that thought with us because that's what we would have if we had not heard this story already repeatedly in our lives. This word from the Lord, like any word from the Lord, requires a response. And that leads us to our second heading, Jonah's response. Verse 3. <clears throat> But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. How does Jonah respond? How does he respond to this call? Well, at, at, at just first glance, it might appear that he is obeying. And he arose. God said, get up and go, and he arose. Whoa, Jonah's going to open. Wait, wait, wait. He arose and bolted. <laughs> no, no way I'm going the other direction. Just for a, a split second, we think he might be obeying, because normally when you read, the Lord comes to a, a man of God, a prophet, and you expect the next thing to be a, that he gets up and obeys, but no, he does get up, but he disobeys. That's, that's the a little bit of a twist in the story that is happening here. Now, again, hearing the story for the first time, one would likely assume that Jonah is fleeing because he is afraid to go confront the ruthless Assyrians. Maybe he is, but that is certainly not the story he tells later in the book, so I'm going to assume he's not, but, but we would assume that as we're going through the story. Many a biblical prophet has been reluctant to accept their call. Jonah, well, he, he, he brings that to the limits. He responds to his call by doing everything he can to run from God. So where does he go? Well, to Tarshish. And did you notice that three times in verse 3, we are told that he went to Tarshish? 
He flees to Tarshish. He goes to Joppa, finds the ship, going to Tarshish. He pays the fare and goes with them to Tarshish. You think the, the narrator's wanting to tell us something that we need to pay attention to? It's Tarshish. Pay attention to that. Anytime something's repeated three times in just the, the, uh, the breadth of a phrase, pay attention to that. It's not known with certainty where Tarshish was. Most likely it was a port at the mouth of the Mediterranean Sea in, the, in southern Spain, so it's the westernmost point on their uh, conception of what the world is. I mean, it's the opposite direction, yes. I mean, you go northeast to get to, to, to Nineveh. Well, here you're going to go due west as far as you can. So that's possibly where it is, and, and maybe most likely. Uh, others associate it with Tarsus from where Paul was. Remember Saul of Tarsus? Um, so others associate with that, which would put it kind of just at the beginnings of Asia Minor, uh, west of Antioch, uh, where it was. There's also a port there. Um, and, and that does add uh, to what are already interesting connections between the book of Acts and the book of Jonah. There are several interesting connections between them, and even Joppa is a connection to the, to, to the book of uh, Acts. It's possible that the physical location was in Spain, but that the author of Acts still wants us to make that sort of verbal uh, connection, that sound connection between Paul and Jonah. But not enough time for why that might be now. Let's do that another day, another time. More importantly, the question we should be asking is this. What was Tarshish in prophetic literature? What was Tarshish? Or we might say who, because it's often personified, was Tarshish. It's a city, mind you. But it's spoken of as an entity, if you will. In the historical books of Kings and Chronicles, King Hiram of Tyre had a fleet of ships from Tarshish supporting, uh, transporting wealth from place to place. Sometimes it's just translated large merchant ships, but it's ships from Tarshish. But that's what that meant. It was associated with the same thing. And that's because uh, to say Tarshish then was much like saying Wall Street now. We say Wall Street, are we talking about a location? Well, yes, if you go to New York City, you can actually find Wall Street and you can go there. But we're not really talking about a location. We're talking about an entire system of economics that maintains wealth for the wealthy. That's basically what goes on. It keeps the, the power of economy moving in our country. Well, Tarshish was much the same in their day, creating wealth or, or, uh, luxury for the wealthy. Isaiah 2 gives us a good sense of how Tarshish was understood, and you can find this uh, in other places in Isaiah and elsewhere, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. Uh, for, for the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low, against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft, and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. Tarshish was associated with all the haughtiness of humanity, all the arrogance and pride of humanity and all their pursuits of, of, of wealth and, and making themselves gods, if you will, in their worlds, how they would have viewed it. Tarshish represents human 
hubris. Now, it is also true that one day Tarsus would bow its knee and, and, and bring tribute to the king coming, the messianic king. So that's true. Jonah is fleeing the presence of the Lord, or literally from before the face of the Lord, who called him to confront Nineveh, but instead Jonah, in running from God's presence, seeks a place of comfort and safety in earthly comforts. It seems Jonah would prefer a comfortable life than one of confronting evil. Once again, I can relate to Jonah way too much. The church can relate to Jonah way too much. How many ways has the church decided it would rather be on the ships of Tarshish with all its luxury than doing the work of Christ? Where blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Jonah has a problem. He's been chosen by God and doesn't have the luxury of taking a cruise to Tarshish with the high rollers instead of confronting injustice in the name of Yahweh. See, that's what he's called to do is go confront the injustice in Nineveh, but he's on a cruise to Tarshish. Now, last week we saw that Jonah was a uh, friendly prophet to a wicked king. He was a very favorable prophet to a wicked king, Jeroboam II. Well, It'd be interesting to read what Amos has to say about Jeroboam II. <laughs> Amos has nothing good to say about Jeroboam II. In fact, Jonah prophesied that Jeroboam II would gain all these lands, and he in fact did. Amos prophesied that those very same lands would be taken away from them by the Assyrians, and well, that happened too. So Amos and Jonah, they're a little bit at odds, you might say, with each other. Jonah is running from one enemy of God's people to another, one that he's much more comfortable with. I'm not very comfortable going to the Ninevites because of what God may do for them, but you know, Tarshish and all the arrogance of humanity, that feels pretty good right now. I think I'll go hang out with them. Of course, Jonah is a lot like Israel. They weren't they were eventually taken into exile because they had gotten so comfortable with the idols of Tarshish that they failed to bring justice to their own people. They got so comfortable with all the wealth they could accumulate, but pretty soon they, 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 they uh, set house to house to house to where there was no more land for anybody to have, and people were left in poverty. And the Lord had much to say against that. Truth be told, Tarshish may have been a bigger problem to Israel than Assyria. But they couldn't see that, and we rarely see it either, because it's not as obvious in its evil because it's so comfortable in its seduction. See, we often think that things that threaten our very lives are our greatest danger, when in fact it may be the comforts that we turn to in place of God that are our greatest dangers. Well, Jonah keeps going down. Anywhere you go from the presence of the Lord, by the way, is down. 
So we think down. If somebody says to me, I went up to Sarasota, I'm quick to think, no, you went down to Sarasota. Why? Because it's south. You didn't go up. It's south. That's not how they thought. Okay. Down is anywhere from the presence of the Lord. Now, to be true, likely he was in the temple in Jerusalem when he heard the word of the Lord. We don't know exactly, but we'll, we'll assume he was there. He hears the word of the Lord. He's going down in elevation as well because he's going toward the coast, which would have been west, maybe a little northwest of where he was, to get to Joppa. There to find a ship to go presumably west or mostly due north if it's the other location, but presumably west toward Spain, what we call Spain today, to that Tarshish, the, a place of great trade. He's heading in that direction, but he's going down. So he, he's going down at least psychologically, we discover, right? But spiritually, but he goes down to Joppa, then Though he's going uh, from, from the coast, he's going down into the ship. Once he gets there, he buys a ticket, and then he goes down into a deep sleep. He just continues to spiral down. He finds the ship from Tarshish. He pays the fare. Now, remember, Jonah was a prophet to a wicked king, so he can pay a fare. Poor people couldn't pay a fare. Jonah was not poor by any stretch of the imagination, because most people in that day did not have money to buy a fare with. You used your crops, you used the things you worked for, you did everything on barter. Money was only something that the wealthy at that time would have had. And so for him to buy a fare tells us something about his status in that society. And of course, being a friendly prophet to a wealthy king might have something to do with that. And so he buys a fare on this Merchant ship carrying the wealth of the nations to go back to Tarshish with them. And apparently he got a cabin with a nice bed because the first thing he does is go down there and goes to sleep and into a very deep sleep. And we're told a second time that he was going away from the presence or the face of the Lord. Of course, we know that you can't really flee from the face of the Lord. And Jonah knew that too. He wasn't stupid. But he was fleeing the place where God had spoken to him. I'm going to get as far away from there as I can because I don't want to do what he said and go there to Nineveh. So I'm going to flee that place too so that I can just get away from that voice in a manner of speaking. Jonah's deep spiritual sleep will soon endanger the unbelievers that are on the boat with him. And that leads to our third um, uh, heading today, the Lord Acts. And that will cover verses 14 through 16. Um, And we read in verse 4, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty or a great tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Now what you're going to see is God acting here, and then that leads to a number of other actions. So the, the, the Lord hurls a great wind and a great storm. Then you have the sailors hurling their, their merchandise, the stuff that they're carrying, their cargo, into the sea. And then finally they hurl Jonah into the sea. So everybody's doing some hurling here, and it starts with the Lord. First, we had seen that the Lord spoke. Now he acts. Jonah thought he had things under control. Jonah thought he could get away with his disobedience. The scene should remind us again in in Genesis 1 when God turned chaos into a place of life and flourishing. He separated the sea from the dry land. So when you're on dry land, 
There's a sense of safety. You're not going into the abyss. Now, if a tsunami occurs and the sea comes over the dry land and they get mixed up again, what do you have? You have death. You have calves. Everybody's going into the abyss. Not a good thing. A boat's an interesting thing. You've got this ship. It's a human concoction that, that takes dry land, if you will, and puts it in the middle of the abyss. And so you live as if you're on dry land in the middle of the abyss until God decides to hurl a great storm at you and says, we're going to mix it all up again. And so here they are on their little piece of dry land out in the middle of the sea. And this storm comes. And everything's turning upside down. Like in Perfect Storm, if you saw that. You know, it's just it's crazy. Talk about that another day. But it was one of those movies I got to the end and felt very disappointed. Um, but we'll, we'll explain that <laughs> another time. But it's, it's, it's the reality that, that, that people experience in that is one of terror. Because you are going into the abyss. When, when land and sea begin to get mixed up again. And it impacts everyone on the ship with him. Have you ever considered that our obedience or disobedience as the people of God in this community that we live in, St. Petersburg, Tampa Bay, however you want to define that, where we live, this community, that our obedience or disobedience impacts everyone in the community? It doesn't just impact us. It impacts everybody in the community. It impacts our neighbors all around here. Maybe our piece of dry land is bigger than that boat, so it's harder to see when everybody's suffering, but when the church is in a spiritual slumber as Jonah was in that ship, the unbelievers around us suffer loss. Whether they realize it or not, we might well be the cause. Now, the unbelievers on board don't know why things are going wrong. So, they don't know why things are going wrong. Look at verse 5. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner parts of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So, the captain uh, came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. The first thing these sailors do is what we do every time we're in a crisis, which is everything humanly possible. Let's just throw the cargo and say, you know they're desperate. I mean, they're a merchant ship. This is how they're getting paid for the voyage. They're throwing it all into the, the sea. They don't care about the money anymore. They're going to be dead if they don't get rid of this stuff. So they do everything humanly possible to survive, and they still won't survive. It's come to this. you got to pray, guys. Each of you to your gods, pray. Yeah, you, you got to pray. Any and every, we don't care what your God is right now. Just see if he'll fix this for us. They're desperate. The mariners or sailors are more committed to their spirituality than Jonah was to his own. They weren't called to be a blessing to the world like Jonah. They were trying to save their skin through prayer. Jonah is sleeping. Robert Alter translates the captain's words this way. What are you doing deep asleep? What are you doing deep asleep? Call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give some thought to us that we may not perish. I do still wonder if the world would not ask the same question of the church. What are you doing deep asleep? 
They certainly long for the church to be the church, even if they don't know it, that, that it's the church that they're longing to be the church at all. They may not know it, but it's what they long for. Isn't this God's question for his people? What are you doing deep asleep? We see it in Isaiah repeatedly, calling the people out of their slumber. Paul quotes Isaiah on the same point, calling the church out of its slumber. And what does the captain ask Jonah to do when he wakes up? To pray. Wake up and pray. Being awake in the New Testament is associated with prayer. Watch and pray, meaning don't fall asleep. You're standing guard around the city. You're to watch. That means stay up. You can't fall asleep when you're watching and pray. If we're going to do God's will in earth as it is in heaven, we certainly must be praying your kingdom come. Your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Well, the story began with the Lord telling Jonah to go to Nineveh and call out against them for their evil had come up before him, before his face. Well, now we find there's another evil in this story. The book, uh, or, or, uh, look, look um, and starting in verse 7, and let's see if we can't figure out where this evil is located. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell to Jonah. Then they, they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. On whose account, they ask, has this evil come upon us? Jonah had brought this evil upon these unsuspecting sailors. And it isn't excused with a line about how they deserved it anyway because they were pagans. How quick are we, maybe even more often as evangelicals, guilty of dismissing the evils of the world? I mean, I, if you remember the tsunami that hit in Indonesia, it, it churned in my stomach when I would hear representatives of evangelical Christianity go on the news saying that this is because of their pagan worship and, and, and the fact that they aren't worshiping God, which dismisses all the Christians that died in the situation to begin with, in the missionaries and so forth. But the absurdity of that logic. Jonah didn't say, well, what's the matter to you? You should die anyway. You're a bunch of pagans. In fact, the pagans in this story are more in line with God's ways than Jonah. An, an accurate doctrine of sin doesn't mean that unbelieving people have no access to truth and right. We, we see this in Abimelech with Abram. Abimelech acted more righteously than Abram. Cornelius in Acts 10. We could go on. There's numerous places in Scripture. But we see it here. While it is not sufficient for salvation to save them, in the ultimate sense, Scripture often is here, we find unbelievers acting more righteously than 
believers. Jonah didn't say, I don't, what, what do you pagans know? I'm going back to sleep. Ironically, he tells them that he fears the, the Lord, Yahweh, Lord with the all caps and the uh, small caps, Lord, um, which seems a bit lost on the audience because if, to them he doesn't fear Yahweh. He's down there running and fleeing from Yahweh. Um, but then he t- tells them who Yahweh is, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Again, a reference back to Genesis 1. That is the God they happen to need right now. The only one who has the power over both land and sea, and they, their little piece of land that's floating on top of that sea is being destroyed, and they need the God who separates dry land from sea. Real badly, right now. So they ask, what have you done? You see, it is Jonah that has done the evil that brought the evil of the storm. An evil which turns out to be mercy for all, including the Ninevites, when all is said and done. But what we also see here, as bad as we might know the Assyrians to be, and as every Israelite knew the Assyrians to be, is that the line between good and evil did not run between Jonah and the Ninevites, but right through his heart. And right through our hearts. We have to realize that as we walk through this story. What shall we do to you? Look at verse 11. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you? That the sea may quiet down for us. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He, he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Notice who they're calling on? Yahweh. They're calling on him by name. Yahweh. O Lord, that's Yahweh in the, in the Hebrew. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared Yahweh exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So these pagans who had been calling on all their gods are now fearing Yahweh and, and sacrificing to him and making vows to him. But even when Jonah tells them to toss him into the sea, their sense of righteousness told them that we can't do this to an innocent man. So they did everything they could to not do that until finally they said, Uncle, we're all going in one way or the other, so we'll toss him in. I mean, the the great repentance of Nineveh, which we'll read about in chapter 3, does not result in them fearing Yahweh. Or even calling on the name of Yahweh. We see nothing about Yahweh in their repentance. But you see it here with these pagans. They began, the story began with them fearing the storm, and it ends with them fearing the Lord. And the Lord has had a plan for Jonah, which we'll pick up in next week, uh, with this big fish or this great fish that swallows him up. But in closing, just a, a few thoughts for us to consider. I think the biggest question for the church today is that which the captain asked Jonah. 
What are you doing deep asleep? What are you doing deep asleep? Asleep as evidenced by our prayer life, no doubt. Asleep as evidenced by our lack of engagement in confronting the evils of this world. Asleep because we don't seem to care about earthly dangers but only heavenly. You notice again, Jonah didn't tell them, oh, you guys are only worried about drowning. That's not that big a deal. Let me tell you how to get to heaven. If we're genuinely concerned about life, we're concerned about life in all its ways. What are you doing deep asleep? Secondly, I wonder if you've found yourself running from God. Maybe as I've spoken today, there's been things going on in your own soul about ways that you have been running from God. What are the Tarshishes, that's hard to say, in your life that you run to for the comfort and safety which human ingenuity can provide? What is your theodicy? Your questions about how God can be just and good in light of fill in the blank. If you haven't ever had those kinds of questions, you're either young, which is fine, or you aren't paying attention. Because I think you're going to have to have some of those questions as you walk through this world. There's plenty of evil going on in the world, and I've got lots of questions about those things. But I've learned that God's ways in the world are a mystery, as Job found out. And a mystery that can only be explained by knowing God's ways of death and resurrection, which this story will keep bringing us closer and closer to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is no accident that Jesus referred to Jonah in reference to his own death and resurrection. And it certainly was no passing comment that he just grabbed an idea from three days and three nights and applied it to the resurrection. No, this whole story is about death and resurrection. And we'll see that as we work our way through it. The reality of it is is that the only way God can save the world is through the death of His people so that His people might be raised to new life. And those people are identified in Jesus Christ when we are united in Him. More on that as we go through. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Help each of us to recognize the ways that we have fled to Tarshish for comfort. Help us to find the ways that we are sleeping as a people instead of actively doing God's will. Lord, help us to Grow in our understanding of how you work in the world, your mysterious ways of death and resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen.